Father, we bow before you today indeed as famished and needy souls. And Father, would you restore and refresh us through your word, encourage us and challenge us. Thank you for the authority of the word. Thank you for the accuracy of the word. Thank you for the encouragement of the word. Use it to sanctify us and set us apart from the world, from the sin, from our flesh. Use it to conform us to the mind and the image of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, I wonder as you look back over the week, what you prayed about. What did you pray about this week? I know some of you and what's going on a little bit, and I know people. So let me suggest some things that we've prayed about this week. Some have prayed for the sale of your home. And some have prayed for the health of your children. And some have prayed for financial provision. And maybe some have prayed specifically in that area of financial provision about something that has really been weighing on you. Most of us have prayed this week because I think it's 70% of our praying, even reflected in our corporate opening prayer today. You've prayed for physical healing, either for yourself or for a loved one, a request that came through on email. We've prayed for safety this week, haven't we? I know Janet and I did. I serve on the board at Appalachian Bible College. I needed to be there for graduation for some responsibilities that I have right now. Um, and it's my joy to be involved there and try to encourage that ministry. So late Friday night, graduation was at 10 o'clock Saturday morning, late Friday night, we were on I-64 heading past Covington, heading into Beckley, and about 10 o'clock at night it became uh, just... Um, very, very stormy and sheets of rain falling. It became dangerous on the highway. We had to slow down and visibility was poor. I became concerned. Sure enough, coming up a, a grade and around a curve, I saw ahead a, a red light that I didn't think should be there, like a tail light. And I, as we approached, there was mud across the road. They had hit one side of the road and then were a car off in the median in the middle between the lanes and... They were upright on all four. There they were. And I thought to myself, that could be us. And you know, before we left in Shenandoah Junction, Janet and I prayed that evening before we left, Lord, would you cover us? Lord, would you protect us as we drive into the dark? I think God answered prayer. Do you? Now, many people made it to their destination who didn't pray. But that is an extension of God's grace to them as well. We pray about all kinds of things. I'm, I'm sure that you prayed like I did if you have grandchildren this week. You prayed, God, would you please bless my grandchildren? Would you turn the hearts of my children to Christ? Some of you have prayed specifically for the salvation of a prodigal child this week. Some of you have prayed for your marriage or the marriage of someone that you know and care about. Or you've prayed for your spouse God, would you please soften their heart? Some of you have prayed this week for a new car. And then some of us have prayed for our old car. 
And some of us have prayed for a new job. And some of us have thanked the Lord for our old job. And I was reminded by one man after the second service, you forgot to say we prayed for my mother-in-law. <laughs> it was a joke, but I think he meant it. I love my mother-in-law and I do pray for her regularly. And we've prayed for the salvation of our neighbors. So how's your prayer life and the things you prayed for this week, how did God do? Did He answer? Did you, did you see specific answers to prayer? That's what we're talking about on Sunday mornings right now. We've kind of taken a little bit of a, a side road on a series that is taking on a little bit of a life of its own. I feel like I need this in my life, and I sense that it's uh, timely for our church family as well. If you're with us on a regular basis, you know that we're working our way through the Gospel of Matthew, and you do not need to turn there this morning. We're actually going to end up being in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, and you may want to position your notes strategically to use those in a few minutes. But as we've been making our way through Matthew's Gospel, and I have enjoyed it, and it's been tremendously helpful in my own life. I hope it's been helpful in your life. We are now in that final week, as you know, we're in Passion Week. Matthew 21 is after the triumphal entry, and, and the next day after that, we have that interesting occurrence where our Lord goes into the temple, and, and in the court of the Gentiles there, they have abused the temple process, and they have corrupted worship. And our Lord goes in in Matthew chapter 21, starting with verse 12. And he kicks over the chairs of the money changers. He kicks over their tables. He kicks over the baskets filled with pigeons that are for sale at exorbitant prices. They have turned worship into a corrupt money-making process. They have become nothing more than extortionists in the temple there. And our Lord declares in no uncertain terms, My house which has become a house of thieves, shall be a house of prayer. And I took that as a challenge for us and for our church, for us to process and evaluate, are we really known as a house of prayer? We're known for many good things at Fellowship Bible Church, for which I praise the Lord. Are we known as a house of prayer? And if not, why not? And, and then we had that next passage, moving into verses 21 and 22 that are so challenging of chapter 21. Remember, our Lord then leaves the temple. He goes to Bethany. He refreshes himself overnight. He comes back in the morning. He's hungry. He goes up to that fig tree and the account of the fig tree with leaves. And because it has leaves, a fig tree is supposed to have fruit. But this fig tree didn't have any fruit. And so our Lord goes up to get fruit because he's hungry. And though there's leaves, there's no fruit. He condemns the fruit tree and immediately the tree dies from the roots up. And the disciples are standing there watching and they say, whoa. And they say, how did you do that? And, and in so many words, how can we do that? And our Lord looks at them and says, if you would just have faith and not doubt... Whatever you ask will be given to you. In fact, you can say to the mountain, move, and it will move into the bottom of the sea. And we're asking ourselves, how do we have that kind of faith? And how do we overcome doubt that is a detriment to effective answered prayer? Our Lord is clear. We've talked about the fact last Sunday then, when we moved into this a little bit deeper, we talked about how that is not 
uh, a singular teaching in our Lord's ministry, and it is repeated in the epistles as well. First John chapter 5, for example, would be one uh, area, verses 13 through 15. You don't have to turn there, but First John 5, um, 13 through 15, he says, Whatever you ask, according to my will, he qualifies it there, according to my will, whatever you ask, if you ask, I will give it to you. We kind of want to know about that, don't we? Because we ask for a lot of things. Or do we? We want to be effective in our prayer life. We want to see God answer prayer. And so we're reacting to our Lord's words to His disciples as He prepares them for ministry and power in their ministry. We're reacting to His statement that if you have faith and do not doubt, it will happen. He'll answer. We want to be a house of prayer, don't we? And we want to be men and women of faith who pray and God answers. And it was occurred, it was rolling in my mind then, what are some of the reasons that faith is undermined in our lives? We did take the time last week, the balance of our time, to recognize that biblically and textually in Scripture we have evidences of, of a variety of reasons that God does not answer prayer. And we had a list of seven reasons why God might not be answering our prayer because we needed to examine ourselves in those areas. But we are reacting most specifically to his Matthew 21 challenge that if you have faith and do not doubt, what does that look like? What does that kind of faith look like? And that's what I wanted to do today. And in a few minutes, we're going to be in Second Chronicles in the Old Testament in a wonderful story where we see the reality of faith at work and God moving in light of that faith. When it could have been a time of overwhelming doubt. It's very helpful to me and I think to all of us. It's helpful for us to look at examples and to see what they did and to learn how God responded. But I thought to prime our pump a little bit as we move into Second Chronicles 20, it would be good for us to just remind ourselves that there are a variety of enemies of faith in our lives. What are the enemies or what are the undermining cause agents of, of, of removing faith from our prayers? Or why don't we have more faith? Why is it that we doubt? Letter A is self-reliance. This is more practical and, and a personal observations than it is textual right now. There are biblical evidences for all of these, but I, I don't want to bog down. I want to just click them off and remind us that we regularly have to work at overcoming some of these natural bugs in the system that will undermine faith. Number one, self-reliance. That can be pride. That can be arrogance. That can be self-sufficiency. That is when we respond in, in carnality. James talks about not receiving answer to our prayer because we ask amiss to feed it on our flesh. Or perhaps it never even occurs to some of us to turn to God in prayer asking Him for solution or resolution because we just think we can handle it. We're tough or we have, we have the abilities. We're strong in our flesh. Self-reliance. It's only when we come to God in humility that He answers prayer. Secondly, letter B is what we're going to see reflected in Second Chronicles 20 in Jehoshaphat's story, and that is overwhelming circumstances 
overwhelming circumstances. I mean, I don't have to illustrate that in your life, do I? You've been there. And you know when the doctor has looked at you and said, it's not good. We don't know. And, and life begins to implode. Or a spouse of decades looks at you and says, I don't want you anymore. Or the phone call comes from the bank and says, they've stopped payment. What do you do? I don't know what to do. It's overwhelming. The circumstances are absolutely out of my control. How about letter C? Unanswered prayer slash questions. Unanswered prayer slash unanswered questions. I think sometimes our faith is undermined by the fact that we've been praying a long time, some of us, and God just seems silent. Or we have some hard questions to ask God and He doesn't seem to give us good answers. God, we, we asked You about this. And I was thinking about, about a lesson in my own life in formative years on up into my adulthood. A story that I've told you before about my father. Um, unanswered prayer. And how you can pray over and over and over and over and God never seems to answer. When I was a little boy, from my earliest years, I can remember at our dinner table or at family devotions, my father regularly would pray for his siblings who didn't know Christ. My dad had a big family that he came from, and, and so he had 12 brothers and sisters. There were 13 of them. Five were stepbrothers and sisters, and then eight of them in a row were Marceau's after that. And, and my dad would pray, particularly for those adult, they were older, those five uh, stepbrothers or half-brothers and sisters, the first five that came, their father died in the flu epidemic of 1918 when my grandmother had five children and then she, my grandfather married her and had eight more. And, and they didn't come to Christ and they were older. And my dad prayed in a kind of a funny way to my, my childhood ears. He would say their first name in the plural, and that's how he would pray for them. He would say, Lord, we pray for Bob's today, and we pray for Orville's today. And, and I'm like, Bob's what? Orville's what? Lord, we pray for Mabel's today. He meant, he, we pray for Bob and his family and, and his children, and we pray for his salvation. We pray for Bob's. And all my life, I grew up hearing my dad pray for Bob's. Lord, we pray for Bob's today that you would save them. Well, well, Bob was a tough guy. He was a cussing, hardworking, hard drinking, had a big beer belly, fought the Japs in Guam in World War II, still hated him, cussed like a trooper, was a rough guy, loved his family, my Aunt Rose, but they were just rough people. And they were religious, they would go to church on Saturday night, but then they drank even harder after that. And... They just didn't know Christ. They didn't know what it was to be at the cross and to lay down your sin at the cross and receive the righteousness of Christ and be born again by grace through faith in Christ alone. Oh, my life, come home from college. I'm 19, 20, 21. Lord, we pray for Bob's. We've been praying for Bob's all my life. This is kind of automatic. Lord, we pray for Bob's. I married Janet. Take her home. My dad's praying. Lord, we pray for Bob's. We're still praying for Bob's. 
Bring the kids home. I'm on my well into my adulthood. Lord, we pray for Bob's. And then one day, the hound of heaven got to Bob's heart. And Uncle Bob got saved. And Aunt Rose got saved. And they finally understood what Jesus did at the cross. And they quit counting their beads. And they quit going to church on Saturday night. They joined a little Bible church on Sunday morning. And my Aunt Rose could play the piano. And they would come and they connected with my mom and dad in a way that they hadn't through all the years very much. And they fellowshiped together. And dad and mom would drive to Wisconsin. And they would drive back to Michigan from Wisconsin. And uh, the few times I was there and Bob's were there. Uncle Bob and Aunt Rose were at the house. And Aunt Rose would sit at my mom's old ancient upright piano. And Uncle Bob would stand there and they would sing through the hymnal. I walk through the garden alone. It is well with my... They would sing and the joy of their salvation was real. And God answered prayer. He didn't answer prayer at 19 years and he didn't answer prayer at 29 years. And he didn't answer prayer at 39 years. I don't know. Uncle Bob was well into his 70s. And my dad was 16 when he started praying for him. But how discouraging is it when you pray for something for 17 years and God's hand hasn't moved? That can undermine faith. God doesn't answer hard questions sometimes. God, I didn't do anything but be a good wife and He left me for that woman. Why? Why? And God seems silent. Letter D, I thought that there is a particular aspect that I've observed through the years that is com- in- incredibly undermining to the faith of people, even mature Christians, but particularly young people, and that is sinful spiritual leaders. Sinful spiritual leaders. You know, in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, he tells us to watch those who have the spiritual authority over us. And it says to imitate their faith. Specifically, you want to know how to have faith? You're supposed to be able to look to your pastor and your elders and imitate their faith. We learn by watching others. That's partly why we're going to Second Chronicles this morning. It's, we, need to, we need to see what this looks like. And we imitate their faith and we believe in their ministry. And then one day, the pastor takes off with the church organist and he's gone. And he leaves his family or the youth pastor gets caught with pornography on his computer. And he gets fired. Ours wouldn't get fired, I assure you of that. He would have a funeral. (laughs) We shouldn't even joke about it. I can't tell you how many of these stories that I could tell you right now. You can't count them on both hands in the last 20 years of the spiritual leaders who have completely imploded and ruined their testimony and in so doing ruined the faith of the young people in their churches. And the young people look and say, well, if it doesn't work for him, then I don't want anything to do with it. Sinful spiritual leaders can undermine and be an enemy of faith, cause doubt to come in. Finally, biblical illiteracy, biblical illiteracy, biblical illiteracy. Here's what I mean by this. It's simple. If you don't, if you don't know the word of God, you won't know the God of the word. And if you don't know the God of the word, you won't have any faith. You won't have any strength in your faith. There's no substance. The word of God is the rebar in our lives that hold us together. 
that leads us to a life of faith so that we can overcome doubt. Well, there are some examples of enemies of faith, and I thought that 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 would get our minds turning a little bit, and then I wanted us um, to move from those observations to a powerful illustration of an example of faith, of living by faith. And it's in Second Chronicles in our Old Testament, chapter 20. I don't know if you can find Second Chronicles very fast. First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Where we are here is in the historical books of the Old Testament. They are a couple things. They are fascinating. It's most interesting reading. If, if you've never read through the accounts from First Samuel through Second Chronicles... I encourage you to do so. Yes, there's hard names in there, but it is a lot of R-rated material. That'll get you reading. It is sin at its finest. It is largely the account of the kings of Israel. Where we find ourselves in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, to put it in context for us just briefly, is that... That the nation is divided. Know this in your mind right now. Israel is divided as a nation. They've had a civil war. And much like our own, it's divided north and south. The kings of the north are all wicked. Just know that. There's been lots of them. And they're all wicked. And they worship idols. And they're, they're immoral. And the northern part is most of the landmass. And the kings are all wicked. And then the south has its kings, and every once in a while, a righteous king surfaces. Almost none of them are really very good, but some are pretty good. And in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, we encounter Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat's a pretty good king. You know who the king of the north, Jehoshaphat's the king of the south in Judah. Israel is north, Judah is south. After the country was divided. And by the way, Israel was not a united nation for very long. They had Saul. They had David. They had Solomon. And it divided under the sons of Solomon. So it was only three generations of kings there. And then the nation divides. And it's been horrible ever since because they turned their face away from the Lord. So Judah is a smaller area. He's the king of the south. Judah is Jehoshaphat. The king of the north is You know him. When I say his name, you'll know him right away. Ahab. Ahab, his wife is Jezebel. Now you know who I'm talking about, right? And he and Elijah is alive about this time. And uh, and Ahab is a wicked king. Now Jehoshaphat doesn't have a perfect record. If you read chapters 18 and 19, you'll know that chapter 20 follows a time where he was outside of the will of God. He was trying to make an unholy alliance with Ahab militarily. You're going to find out if you read chapter 21 that his son takes over and Jehoshaphat's son is a completely wicked guy. In fact, he's going to marry a daughter of Ahab and Jezebel. So the whole thing is convoluted and messed up. But right in the middle of this, we have a testimony of Jehoshaphat leading with some spiritual strength. And he provides for us here a wonderful example of what a testimony of faith looks like. It's very interesting. Let's look to our notes and let's look to the text. And let's begin by just reading the first three verses. After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites and with them some of the Meunites came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are, they are in 
Hazazen, the Tamar, that is, Engadi. And then Jehoshaphat was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord. Let's stop there in a minute and let's just understand what's happening. Young people, I want you to listen right now because it's pretty interesting. When you open up reading there, it kind of blurs over because you see these are the Moabites and the Ammonites. The first thing we see is Jehoshaphat's problem, by the way, letter A. Jehoshaphat's problem. And the first thing we see about his problem is that it's overwhelming circumstances. It's overwhelming circumstances. What are these circumstances? The scouts have come and they've reported that there's an enemy army that has surrounded him and they are after him and they are going to actually annihilate him. They want to wipe him off the face of the earth. So there is the threat of annihilation. Who are these people? The Moabites and the Ammonites. This is where I want you young people to listen because it's really interesting. You can read this later, and this is some R-rated reading as well. It's Genesis chapter 19. It's Genesis chapter 19. You don't have to turn there right now. I'll just tell you. Because here's the lesson. It's for old people too. Decisions have consequence. Decisions have consequence, young people. And on a day, you can think that this is the right thing to do, and you don't realize that generationally from then on, you're going to pay a price for it. And here's what happens. Lot had moved into Sodom. God moves him out. His wife turns around and looks back, turns into a pillar of salt. Genesis chapter 19. Lot moves up on the side of a mountain, moves into a cave with his two young adult daughters who don't have husbands. They're up there living in the wilderness and they want to have children because it's sort of a, a stigma in their time to not have children if you're a woman and they don't know what to do to find a man so they get their father drunk and they impregnate themselves with him in an incestuous relationship when he's drunk. The oldest daughter has a son that she names Moab. The youngest daughter has a son that she names Ben-Ami. The Ammonites and the Moabites. And these people are wicked people and from then on, generationally, do nothing but cause grief to God's people all through the generations. Arguably to this day. Now there's another name there, the Minunites, the Meunites, and it's not real certain from, what, from my reading. Uh, no one is 100% sure who they are. They were evidently a lesser known uh, Arab descent group. And that would make them likely some form of the descendants of Esau. And there was a tribe or two of them that had joined in. It's an interesting group of people. All of them trace their genealogy back to a grandfather who made a decision or a grandmother who made a decision that was outside of the will of God and it complicated the people of God from then on. Learn a lesson from that. These overwhelming circumstances and threat of annihilation are great and we see finally that in verse 3 that Jehoshaphat was afraid and so we recognize that he has the opportunity for paralyzing fear paralyzing fear some of you know what paralyzing fear feels like you don't want to get out of bed in the morning you can't swallow sometimes you can't catch your breath you're overwhelmed with fear and you don't know what to do with that fear and you can't hardly control it and if anybody had an opportunity to be paralyzed by fear Jehoshaphat has an opportunity this army is too vast he cannot stand against them he's going to be wiped off the face of the earth Ahab to the north is not going to come to his defense and he is going to 
die. So notice his response. It ends up being Jehoshaphat's prayer. He, he, he responds in a way that you might argue was politically dangerous for him. He doesn't respond with the army. He calls the nation together for, for fasting and prayer. That would be a great day, wouldn't it? When from the White House or the Rose Garden, our, our president called our nation and said, I don't know what to do, but we need to bow before the Lord and we need to fast and we need to pray to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because he has the answers for us. And that's what Jehoshaphat does. He said, we need to pray and we need to pray to God right now. And so Jehoshaphat's prayer is very interesting. And I want you to notice that three times Jehoshaphat begins to seek the Lord in verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. And so what does he do? Does he go into panic? Does he lose his temper? Does he throw things? Does he swear? No, it says he set his face to seek the Lord. He set his face to seek the Lord. You could underline that. And then, in, and then he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. He called the nation to prayer and fasting. And then it says that Judah assembled for what purpose? Look at here it is again. To seek help from the Lord. To seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came. Why? To seek the Lord. There it is. Three times in a row. They came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat begins to pray. He stood in the assembly. Verse 5 of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the house of the Lord is Solomon's temple. And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. The first thing I want you to see about his prayer in verse 6 is that he acknowledges God's power. He acknowledges God's power. God is, you are sovereign over all the earth. You're sovereign over the nations. In other words, it's like a, it's like a chessboard and you're moving the parts and pieces of the chessboard. You have the power. You have the sovereign control. And we're going to acknowledge that. We have no power. You have all the power. Not a bad place to start in our prayer. Acknowledging the power of God. Verse 7, then, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built it for you in a, in a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house, the temple and before you, for your name is in this house and cry out to you in, your, in our affliction, and you will hear and you will save. The second thing that Jehoshaphat recognizes in his prayer, after recognizing God's sovereign power, is he recognizes God's provision. God's provision, particularly in the past. God, haven't you brought us into this land? God, isn't this your plan? See, Jehoshaphat knew that he was in the will of God at this point. You see... This raises another whole element to unanswered prayer. This problem of having faith and having doubt and having unanswered prayer. We're looking at an example today. Last week was faith, doubt, and unanswered prayer. Today is faith, doubt, and answered prayer. It raises a whole issue. See, this was God's land. He had given it to them. They were there. They were in the will of God. They were doing what God wanted them to do. It raises the whole issue of decision-making that I make in my life that unfolds and leads to the significance of catastrophic results in my life because I'm outside of the will of God. 
And then we wonder why I got in. I, you know, I make decisions. My parents told me not to do it. My pastor told me not to do it. God's word speaks against it. I still do it. I make those decisions. I talk to people like this on a regular basis in my office. Their lives are imploding, and when you step it back, you find out that it is because of a series of decisions that were made that were completely outside the will of God, and then they wonder why their life is a disaster, and how is God going to answer this prayer? Well, I assure you, God cares, and God in His grace and His mercy has a way of dealing with that, but it is not easy, and it is compounded when we're outside of the will of God. And that's another whole way of discussion on prayer. I'm finding with with this matter of prayer that it's like the four blind men, the parable of the four blind men that looked at the elephant, right? I didn't say this already in this service, did I? And they describe the elephant. Remember, one has a hold of the trunk, one's pushing on the sides, one's flapping with the ear, the other's tugging on the tail. And they describe these blind men, the elephant, and they all have completely different descriptions. And it's a little bit like that when you come to this subject of prayer. There's so many angles to come at it. There's so many things to talk about. And there's so many elements that that make up this whole matter of, of our prayer life and living by faith and overcoming doubt. We'll try to deal with a few even in the, another week or two. Well... Jehoshaphat has acknowledged God's power. He's recognized God's provision. We're in your land. We're in your place. I want you to notice that in verses 8 and 9 that he has also remembers the promise of God. He remembers the promises of God because he's actually quoting scripture here. In verse 9, if disaster comes upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house, the temple, and before you. For your name is in this house, and we will cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. That is a quote from 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 28 to 31. And it's where Solomon has ded- is dedicating the temple to God, and God is assuring him of his blessing if they will keep their face towards this temple. And he said, even if in 2 Chronicles 6, he says, when pestilences, even grasshoppers come and eat your crops, you come and turn your face towards me and I will answer your prayer. I will hear you. And Jehoshaphat is reminding God of his promise from the past. It's also another element to our prayers. I think it's fine for us to model some of these dynamics that Jehoshaphat has in his prayer We begin and we acknowledge the power of God. God, you are sovereign. You are over all things. God, I am your possession. God, this house is your possession. They're going to come take it. God, I dedicated that child to you. That's your possession. That child belongs to you, not to me. That means it's your problem, God, more than it's my problem. The needs that we have in our lives, Lord... We recognize your provision. You've promised to provide and give us our daily bread. And we remind ourselves of the promises of God. I will never leave you or forsake you. How many of you know that the God of the Old Testament is the same God in the New Testament? How many of you know that many of the promises of God to his people in the church in the New Testament are quotes from the Old Testament of his promise to Israel? Two distinct groups of people, the nation of Israel and the church in the New Testament, two distinctly different groups of people. And yet the promises apply in many of the same ways when they're repeated in the New Testament and in the epistles. So I don't have to fear what man will do unto me. Hebrews chapter 13, starting with about verse 4, 5, 6 in there. For he has said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. Those are promises 
We can rely on their promises that were given in the Old Testament and their promises to be believed in the New Testament. And we remember the promises of God. That's what Jehoshaphat did. He admits then to God that he is powerless. Verses 10 through 12. Notice. And now behold, the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt. See, it's kind of interesting to track that there were certain groups of people that ended up being descendants of Abraham and Ishmael and others. And some of those groups of people, God promised them to be a large nation and a people. And some of the groups of people, God wouldn't let Israel wipe off the face of the earth because of promises that he had made. Even though their origin was from disastrous decisions. And Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when you came from the land of Egypt and who they avoided and who they did not destroy. Behold, they reward us. See, we didn't destroy them when we had the chance. And now they're rewarding us, verse 11, by coming to drive us out of your possession. We are your possession and this land is your possession, which you gave us to inherit. We're in the will of God to be here, Lord. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless, there it is, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Notice that he admits to God that he is powerless. And I want you to take note now as we read the next few verses of the position that Jehoshaphat is in. The first one is we've already read in verse 12, his eyes are on God. What's he doing? He's watching for God. He's watching God. Meanwhile, verse 13, all of Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones and their wives and their children. I think this is a day they will never forget. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jeel, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Listen. So Jehaziel is a prophet. He's a good man and he has a word from the Lord. This is the equivalent of us standing up and reading our Bible in front of the congregation. So Jehaziel has a word from the Lord and he says... In the middle of verse 15, Thus says the Lord to you, Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde, for the battle is not yours, but it is God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley, east of the wilderness of Jeriel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. What a word from God they get. And in verse 17, we have Jehoshaphat's second position, standing firm. When I'm living by faith... When I'm living by faith and I'm not exemplifying doubt in my life and I'm overcoming doubt, my eyes are on God. I'm standing firm on convictions of the word of God. He says, do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground. The third place I am is I have my face to the ground. I have my face down in humility. You see where Jehoshaphat is? He's not screaming. He's not yelling. He's not throwing things. He's not sharpening his sword. He's not responding in the flesh. As his eyes on God, he's standing still. And then he gets down on his face. And now God has room to work. How often are our carnal responses a reason that we undermine faith and we don't give God an opportunity to work? Anger, impatience, wrong decisions and wrong activity. 
And then Jehoshaphat, verse 18, bowed his head with his face to the ground, and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The next thing I want you to see is Jehoshaphat's praise. Jehoshaphat's praise. Just, let's just read. Verse 19, And the Levites and the Kohohites and the Korahites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. Hey, do you know that there's a time when God's people ought to praise Him really loudly? We're not very good at that around here. And I wonder if we're not very good at it because we haven't had very many big prayers answered. You know, when God begins to move and God answers and He responds to His people, you're not going to be quiet. When we see a broken sinner saved, when we see marriages restored, we ought to celebrate. We ought to praise the Lord. He praised the Lord with a very loud voice and they rose early in the morning and they went out into the wilderness of Tekoa. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and he said, Hear me, Judah, and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Now here's Jehoshaphat's faith, everybody. Here's Jehoshaphat's faith. Believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. Two times. Believe. Believe. That's his faith. And when you says believe his prophets, it's the same as saying for us today to say believe this Bible. It's the word from the Lord. Believe it to be true. Believe his prophets and you will succeed. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in his in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. And when they began to sing and praise the Lord, excuse me, and when this is where commas are very important. And when they began to sing in praise, comma, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. God brought a spirit of confusion on the armies and they killed each other. Later in the passage, it says it took Jehoshaphat and his men three days just to pick up all the loot off the battlefield. Did you see what happened? Do you see that Jehoshaphat believed... That is his faith, no doubt, no doubt. He believed the word from the Lord and he began to praise God for deliverance before, before he ever answered their prayer. Wow. You see, Jehoshaphat stopped trying to worry about the mountain and he got his eyes on God and God moved the mountain. What do we get from this? What do we take home in conclusion? It's partly what I just said, number one. It is this. Faith. Faith has everything to do with my focus. Remember now, what we're talking about here for these weeks is how do I grow my faith? And how do I overcome doubt? And we're using Jehoshaphat as a model, an example. Faith has everything to do with our focus. Jehoshaphat got his eyes on the Lord from beginning to end. He, he set his face to see God. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 21. We're going to move these mountains. But our problem is the mountains that we move overwhelm us. And we become fixated on the mountain. And we forget the God who's the one who moves the mountain in his time, in his way, in answer to his will. I mean, we believe God can do it, right? 
We know He can do it. We, we recognize His power. We even sing songs about it. Songs that we, and hymns that we know very well, like, um, Great is Thy faithfulness, O God my Father. There is no shadow of turning with Thee. And Thou changest not Thy compassions, they fail not. Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Great is Thy faithfulness. Great is Thy faithfulness. Morning by morning. And we sing and we sing. And then we turn and we look at the mountain, right? And instead of looking at God and waiting on God and allowing Him to be God. And so faith has everything to do with our focus. This is Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, isn't it? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understandings. In all your ways acknowledge Him and then He will direct your paths. Right? It's, a, it's, it's our direction of focus. Secondly, this is a question that occurred to me because I think it's, it's part of the systemic problem that we have and it manifests itself a lot. And it has to do with this. I didn't really even know how to word this, so let me just read it. If I can trust God for my salvation... Why can't I trust Him fully for the issues of life? If I can trust God for my salvation, how is it that I'm having so much trouble trusting Him for the matters of my life? You understand what I'm saying here? I mean, we come to God through Christ in faith, believing that His gospel is true. And we count on it. All of my sin, all of my garbage... All of the things that disgrace me in the presence of a holy God and that God condemns and the wages of that sin is death. I come to the cross and the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ my Lord. And it's the only way out from underneath the baggage of sin. And Christ, who kept the law, does it for me. He says to me, put down your sin. Let me give you my righteousness. You say, wait a minute. How much will that cost me? He says, no, it's a free gift. You just take it. You believe. You take your sin to the cross and in faith believe that Jesus is the Christ. And we have that kind of faith, right? And we count on it. And one thing I know for sure, no matter how bad I've messed up, I'm going to heaven and I'm counting on my salvation. Then how come I don't have that much faith for God to help me fix my car in the rain? And instead of losing my temper and I'm late for work and I'm imploding emotionally because I'm overwhelmed with my life. All of the matters of life that just undermine us and undermine our testimony, we don't deal with them in faith. Lord, how should I see this today? Lord, what are you going to do in my life today to help me walk according to your will? No, we're sometimes way far out in front of God. is not reminding me of Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave His life for me. I messed that up a little bit, but that's pretty much it. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of... There's the word faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I entered that salvation by faith and then it's like I have enough faith to get my ticket to heaven in my pocket and then I quit living by faith. What is that all about? You have to process that one. Number three, I think out of this story of 2 Chronicles chapter 20 and the testimony of Jehoshaphat that we draw this conclusion that doubt is directly related to disbelief in God's word. 
Okay, we're talking about growing in faith and overcoming doubt. And my conclusion has to be when I see this story that doubt is directly related to disbelief in God's word. I mean, because he's given us plenty of instruction. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. Remember that the Lord is near. And then the peace of God that passes all understanding will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. But I'm not good at that. I will never leave you or forsake you. You do not have to fear what men will do unto you. Over and over and over, the God of the Old Testament repeats His promises in the New Testament. And so if I melt down in lack of faith, the only conclusion I can come to is that I don't believe what He said. Do not worry about what you will eat today. Do not worry about what you will wear. Don't I feed the birds? Don't I clothe the lilies of the field? And if, and if I do it for them, how much more will I do it for you? But Lord... I want to eat it out back. Now, I don't know how you process this. I just know that the promises of God are to be believed. One of our prayers can be, Lord, would you help me just to take your word and believe it? Just simply believe the word of God. That's what faith is. Listen, if you can figure it out, if you can logic your way through it, it is not faith. But when God says it, and you believe it, and you receive it, and you count on it, even when you cannot understand it, in fact, only when you cannot understand it, essentially, is when you're walking by faith. And to, to disbelieve the Word of God is to enter the world of doubt. I'm telling you. So one of the things we need to do is ratchet up our knowledge, our commitment to the very words of God. He will do what He says. He will not fail us. He's a loving Heavenly Father. Will you stand with me, please? Would you ask the Lord to strengthen your faith today and help us overcome doubt? Ask the Lord to show you how to live one step at a time. Counting on his word, overcoming the flesh. Psalm 37 might be our text for this week. Psalm 37, there he says, To wait upon me, and I will answer. Lord, would you just help us to wait upon you? Father, would you grow our faith, diminish doubt? Would you just give us a growing confidence in your word? Would you show us what a trustworthy heavenly father you are? And you do not fail your children. And even in circumstances that are overwhelming, may we seek your face and rest upon your promises. Encourage and strengthen our people this week, I pray. Help us to be a praying people. Help us to grow in our faith. To see your hand at work in Jesus' name. Amen.